0: Welcome to the Innovation in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome
1: to the discussion. My guest is Chris Townsend, the Vice President of Federal at Symantec. Chris, welcome to the discussion today.
2: Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here.
1: Before we get started, let me add some context to our discussion. August was the four-year anniversary of the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program. In 2013, DHS and its procurement partner, the General Services Administration, awarded 17 vendors a spot on a $6 billion contract to move agencies toward a real-time, proactive cyber posture. Around the same time, the Office of Management and Budget issued new Federal Information Security Management Act, or FISMA, guidance requiring agencies to move to continuous monitoring of systems by 2017. So, Chris, here we are, almost to fiscal 2018, a few months left of calendar year 2017, and agencies have struggled really to meet both of those goals. DHS and GSA recently announced a change in approach to CDM using the government-wide contract for IT services called Alliant and eventually the Alliant 2 for future cyber work. For some agencies, FISMA is no longer a compliance exercise, but a guiding principle to managing risk. For others, it's harder to get off that FISMA train where they're reviewing systems on an infrequent basis. While CDM and the continuous assessments under FISMA have fallen short of expectations, agencies by far are in a better place when it comes to cybersecurity than ever before. Through OMB's 2015 cyber sprint, agencies know where their high value assets are. They have reduced the number of system administrators and now require two factor authentication to log onto the network. And maybe most importantly, federal senior leadership remains involved, engaged, and concerned about possible cyber attacks. The WannaCry threat from earlier this summer was a perfect example of just how far agencies have come since the 2014 Heartblade attack. There's much more coordination, understanding, and immediate response to those threats. So, how can agencies continue to make progress? Well, that's where my guest comes in. Once again, Chris Townsend, the Vice President of Federal at Symantec. Chris, I laid it out in a way that, that looks at the last maybe three or four years. We can go all the way back to probably 2006 when the Veterans Affairs Department uh, employee lost the, the laptop that contained 26 million uh, records of veterans, or you can go even further back to some some things that DOD has done. But what are we seeing today? How has the challenges really changed over the last few years? I joined Symantec about a year ago through the Blue Coat
2: acquisition, and my first order of business after joining Symantec was to... Get out and meet with all of our customers and understand the value that Symantec's bring to the customer base, but also to understand the challenges that our customers are facing. And uh, went out and met with the CISOs and CIOs in all three D, all three verticals in federal DoD, civilian, and the IC. And the challenges they face are remarkably similar across all areas. First is the lack of standardization in cybersecurity. So if you look at cybersecurity in general, it's still the most fractured segment of IT. If you look at the standardization that's occurred on the networking side of the house, the storage side of the house, operating systems, databases, CRM tools. We have two or three primary vendors that build to a standard and that they're integrated across the, uh, across the environment. We still have a very fractured segment on IT, on, on cybersecurity and IT. And that's one of the areas that we really need to drive to a standard. The feedback I get from the agency heads is, hey, we have too many tools. Those tools duplicate multiple capability, multiple functionality, they overlap. Uh, none of those tools integrate. None of those tools have any automation. So, that requires human intervention then to integrate all of those systems to process all of that data and to take action on that uh, on the malicious actors. And our bad actors are more sophisticated. They're more agile than ever. And we can't rely on human intervention to do that. We really need systems that, that are standards-based, that are integrated, and that can take automated action in real time against these cyber threats to get ahead of them. So, that's that's the first challenge we see. The second challenge we see is this move to cloud. Obviously, there's tremendous value in the federal government moving to cloud into a shared services model. We can realize the cost savings, agility, and, and uh, increased efficiency of cloud applications, but security is the number one barrier to adoption of cloud. We have this very complex environment today on the on prem side of the house. We really need to now extend our security posture from on premise into the cloud, get away from this hard perimeter approach that we have to security and build an extensible platform that will both provide a standardized approach to security on premise and into the cloud by securing the data itself and tying the security posture to the individual, whether that individual is accessing the data from on premise or accessing it remotely from their grandmother's house when they're home for the holidays on a non-government-owned device. And then the last real challenge that we're seeing, uh, the third challenge that we're seeing that's consistent across all verticals uh, in in uh, in the federal government is is the workforce crisis that we have right now. We talk about the need for security analysts. You talked about it in your opening. Uh, security analysts are are hard to recruit. They're expensive. They're expensive to train. And then once our federal agencies get those folks trained up, they often leave and go to private sector for higher paying jobs. Uh, again, that really drives to this need of a, a standard in security where the tools will integrate, automate, and take action in real time where we don't require that human intervention to limit the need, the number of security analysts we need. And then also uh, we need better government and private industry partnership to uh, address our our workforce challenges.
1: So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me back up for a second. One of the things you mentioned was this idea of automation orchestration. It's a theme I'm hearing quite a bit, especially when I do these shows and I talk to security experts like yourself. But the other piece of it that I, I seem to understand is this move away from the defense in depth, you know, kind of put up the perimeter, put all these tools on the perimeter, you know, the, the old idea of the high wall, the moat, the drawbridge, you know, all of that, all those tools that what we once thought we needed, but agencies have invested in these tools. So, how, how do you back out, or how do you how do you move away from these investments that you've spent money, time, and energy on? I don't know if it, if we want to back out from defense
2: defense in depth per se. I think we continue to need defense in depth. Uh, there was an idea of of vendor in depth as well. There was also this. There, there's there's certainly a trend toward the shiny object technology in in, in security. So we we get folks that uh, will go out and acquire you got the security threat du jour, you go out and you buy a new tool, you integrate that tool into your environment, but that tool, again, doesn't interoperate with any of the other tools you have and creates this tremendous operational complexity and cost inefficiency in your security environment. So to back to your point, we have an opportunity with the IT modernization initiative as part of the executive order to take a step back and start to build out a more proactive security architecture, build from the ground up, build a reference architecture that ties to the mission initiatives of the agency. and and again, leverage the IT modernization initiative to do that. And by doing that, we'll realize tremendous cost savings in terms of operational efficiency, in terms of interoperability, in terms of needing less people to maintain that, that security environment that will offset. The cost of reducing the tools.
1: That cost of reducing the tools is a little concerning just because they make this big investment. And, and that's one of the things that I'm hearing about with the cloud. Just recently, I was at an event and they started talking about responsibilities when it comes to the cloud. So let's talk a little bit about that idea, that concept of if I'm an agency and I'm in the cloud, but it's a public cloud or a government-only public cloud, whose responsibility is it for the security and what tools do I need to to make me comfortable that you're doing the security that you should be doing? It, yeah, I think that's a a new conversation that's starting to rise up.
2: There's a real a, a misperception out there. FedRAMP is is a is a challenge, but it's a necessary certification to make sure that we have the right security for our cloud service providers. However, FedRAMP provides the certification that that environment meets federal requirements, it doesn't mean that your data is protected. That responsibility still is incumbent upon the agency that owns the data to protect their data in that cloud environment. And again, we're seeing adoption of technologies like cloud access security brokers that tie in with your on-prem security environment to be able to extend your security policy into the cloud. Again, your, your environment is so complex already today, your security environment. Now you add cloud, your data is resides in the cloud, it resides in a mobile device, it resides in a, a device that's not provided by the government, and being accessed from all these different areas, it's important that the agencies understand where their
1: responsibility begins and ends, and, and you have to continue to protect that data. The third piece that you brought up, uh, I just wanna, from the challenges, is the workforce piece. And we could spend the entire discussion here probably on the workforce the tools and the orchestration the automation piece can solve the workforce challenges. Is is that the best bet versus trying to hire a bunch of people and training a bunch of people? Because as you said, they get trained up, then they leave. And then there's never an ending need for more and more and more. You need to do both. So we need better interoperability with the tools and we need the tools
2: to, to be able to take action in an automated fashion, reduce the number of security analysts you need. However, I think if we can improve the government and industry collaboration around Sharing resources, cross-training resources, fellowship programs to begin to build a more robust cybersecurity workforce to support the government and give those folks flexibility to move back and forth between industry and government. We can address that together, but we need to do both.
1: You brought up tools several times that leads me down to the discussion of the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program. Let's jump into that a little bit. This is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Phase 3 is just beginning. Uh, There's a recent RFP that came out task order for Phase 3, something called DEFEND. At the same time, agencies are starting to enter into Phase 2, into Phase 3. Talk about what you're seeing around CDM and how is that really changing the the way agencies think about but also protects their systems and networks.
2: Well, in your opening, you mentioned that CDMs increase the overall security posture of the government, and that's absolutely the case. We've seen some great benefit from CDM. I think if you talk to most of the agency heads out there, they would say it just hasn't rolled out as quickly as they'd like, but I don't think anybody can argue that it has increased the security posture of the government, has uh, helped us deploy some security capabilities more effectively. We at Symantec are very excited about phase three. Phase three now extends from endpoint and your your operational environment out to the perimeter. Uh, we have a lot of industry leading technology that sits out there at the perimeter, web and content filtering, cloud security, data loss prevention that will now integrate with the endpoint. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to phase three and, and uh, we feel like phase three is really gonna start to bring together the border protection and the endpoint
1: one thing when you when you talk about cdm is the slowness of the rollout and i think that that's been as you said the the biggest criticism of the program mm-hmm. do you get a sense that the agencies just weren't quite ready for it back in 2013 2014 and now here we are in 2017 almost 2018 and they have a much better sense of what they need and what they expect with the program my understanding is from dhs and others is that the inventory is just there's a great story about how some one agency that they thought they had 80,000 devices, and when they actually did the audit, they had 100,000 devices, and that's a big difference. And that
2: was very common, but if you look at the undertaking, what they were trying to do with CDM, you had 71 civilian agencies that were participating. It was a huge, complex initiative, and you had to expect that there would be some some speed bumps along the way, and things would take longer than expected to roll out. All in all, though, I, I don't think you can argue with the efficacy in improving the overall security posture of these agencies. Certainly the way that they collected the data, uh, you know, the CDM program would reach out to the agency and ask them, what tools do you have and how many users do you have? And there wasn't a perfect way for collecting that data. So certainly there were some errors made, but They've built some flexibility into the program now going forward, to course, correct for that. I think there were some lessons learned from phase one and phase two that will be addressed in phase three. But I'm sure there'll be some challenges in phase three that we'll have to figure out as well.
1: And I imagine at the same time, the cyber sprint that agencies went through in 2015, uh, they know much more about what's going on in their world. Do you see that as you talk to clients in the government that they're much more aware of what their cyber posture is or what they need to defend better?
2: The cyber sprint certainly has improved visibility into the environment. However, I will say, you know, if you talk to to, to General Tuhill, the former uh, CISO of the federal government, that was he was in that role for about nine months. His number one priority was beginning to index the data that we have within the federal government and make sure that we're properly prioritizing the data so that we can align our security investments to where our, our crown jewels are right in the federal government. And we, you know, obviously it's, we know that the intelligence community and the DOD houses critical data, but, you know, we found out very painfully that OPM had some awfully important data as well as, as does, you know, the FDA and patent and trade and a lot of intellectual property from private industry that resides within the federal government. So we have to make sure that we're prioritizing our security investments around our most critical data. And now that we know where the data is, we have to um, start to assign or quantify or, Uh, a a value of that data.
1: And that comes back to that discussion about the high value data assets. Uh, I think one of the best things that came from the sprint is understanding where things live and what they are and why they mean so much or don't mean as much. And I think hopefully agencies are building off that and not just kind of standing back going, okay, that that was a good exercise, let's move on. I don't know if you're seeing a a progression happening. We'll talk about the future in a little bit, but over the last two years.
2: Certainly, and the executive order has accelerated that as well. Now that agency executives are accountable for the uh, cybersecurity executive order, that has shifted their support uh, more around their, their CISO and their security organizations to get their arms around where their critical data is, is it secured properly, and to make sure that the investments that they're making in that uh, in that security infrastructure aligns with their critical data. So yes, that it's improving, but we still have a ways to go. And again, funding's always a challenge.
1: All right, you bring up the security executive order. We're going to jump there in a second, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Innovation in Government, sponsored by Carisoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM.
0: Cyber sabotage and ransomware are on the rise while cloud to IoT are changing the tech landscape. How do we find clarity in this growing cyber complexity? Complex challenges call for bold solutions. Join the best and brightest cyber minds on December 5th at the annual Semantic Government Symposium in Washington, D.C. You don't want to miss this one-day event where we'll tackle these critical issues together. Register today at semantic.com backslash symposium. That's semantec.com backslash symposium. Tune in on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. for the Innovation in Government show sponsored by Carasoft. Learn from industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Innovation in Government examines a wide range of topics and evaluates their payoff, cybersecurity, big data, mobility, cloud computing, and more. Innovation in Government, Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. Search Innovation in Government.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Innovation in Government, sponsored by Carisoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Chris Townsend, the Vice President of Federal at Symantec. Chris, right before break, you started talking about the executive order. You talked a little bit about how agencies made it through the cyber sprint. And now the executive order is really building on that cyber sprint. Talk a little bit about this impact of the executive order as agencies start using what they're learning from these reports that are due. I think it was something like 15 or 16 reports over 240 days. Yeah. Uh, what can they do beyond reports that the executive order is pushing them toward?
2: You know, there's three primary things that we take away from the executive order. And, and by the way, I think the executive order was a was a, was a a great thing and it was necessary. Number one, it builds accountability for the executive leadership within the agency. So we're seeing increased support from agency leadership to the cybersecurity organizations, to the CISOs, and it's fostering better communication there. Uh, The second thing is standardization around the NIST cybersecurity framework. That was a tremendous effort by NIST to build that framework over a couple of years. They've released it. Everyone that I've talked to within government and outside of government, within industry, all agrees that it's the right approach, and it's now giving us that high-level architectural roadmap to begin to build to. And then the third component of the, the executive order was the IT modernization piece. And again, that's a critical need within the federal government, and the IT modernization initial will give us an opportunity to start to build out cybersecurity more proactively and kind of take a step back from, from this reactive uh, environment that we have today.
1: One of the things you bring up is the NIST framework. And I remember covering this in 2012 timeframe and when NIST released it, there's a lot of, well, I don't know about this. I'm not sure about this. It's interesting how things have turned over the last, you know, four or five years, and people are really saying, Hey, this is a good thing. This does work. This does make a difference. But do you hear from the private sector as well that, that this framework is much they have a different view than maybe they did three, four, five years ago.
2: Yeah, we're, we're getting very positive feedback. I don't directly work with the private sector, but certainly my peers do. We talk a lot about it and we're we're getting very positive feedback from the private sector that they're adopting the NIST cybersecurity framework as their high-level architecture. They're built through architecture as well. So uh, overall, we're getting very positive feedback. In fact, I have yet to talk to anyone that says, hey, th- this isn't the right
1: approach. Earlier, we talked about interoperability and we talked about automation and, and things like does the NIST framework, is it hitting those areas too? I mean, our agencies, because when you talk about architecture and we could bore people to death with architecture talk. That's right. So we don't want to do that. But when you talk architecture, it's really how this, the platforms and systems and, and everything that's kind of behind the scenes.
2: The cybersecurity framework is very high level. So no, it doesn't really address the standardization that's required, the the integration, the interoperability, all those pieces. It gives you that. That high-level build to state, but there's still a lot we need to do in terms of building back up to that cybersecurity framework, and there's a lot of um, detail there that uh, that you know that, that's not that that wasn't the intention really.
1: Right. Well, I know NIST didn't want to make it prescriptive. Right. I know that. And, right. and definitely vendors didn't want NIST to make it prescriptive. That's right. The other piece that you mentioned was the this increased support for CIOs and CISOs. And, you know, Federal News Radio did a recent survey of, of federal CIOs. And, and for the second year in a row, we've been told the biggest impact of the cyber sprint has been that support. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing as you go talk to agencies, government clients about that high level supporter. Are you in meetings that used to be just the CIO and the CISO? And now the dep sec is there or the assistant secretary for management or the CFO. What are you seeing?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We've had a number of agency meetings where the deputy secretary and, and senior leadership from the agency want to be there because security is a priority. It's been a priority for years, but again, with the executive order, with with the very visible security breaches we've had recently, with the continuing con- concern around insider threat, we are absolutely getting executive participation in these meetings and, it, and and it's a concern. And we're seeing the, you know, the CIO and the CISO, Elevated within the agencies and they're important within the importance within the agencies around cybersecurity, no question.
1: I think that's can only be good news because if again you see this probably in the private sector or, or based on other experiences, if the senior leadership's not involved or doesn't care, things tend to either slow down or, or go backwards. Sure. And so I think that's a good sign. Let's jump over to IT modernization, the third leg of the stool around the the EO. There's a big push in Congress. We know the Modernizing Government Technology Act is still working its way. It potentially could be included in the Defense Authorization Bill. Given a sense of why this EO is so important for this IT modernization effort and how the two kind of bring 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 a lot of goals together.
2: The IT modernization effort is still pending. We're all hoping that it goes through. It's certainly necessary. You know, there's a lot of capital projects, capital IP, IT projects within the federal government that don't have the proper O&M tail to support those. And you've got all this legacy technology out there that needs to be refreshed. And and by the way, there is certainly a return on investment. In IT modernization, we're supporting a lot of old legacy systems that are very costly to maintain, be much better to update those systems, move some of those systems away and and shift to a cloud or shared services model to, to, to save some costs there. And we need that IT modernization bill to pass. In terms of the executive order, I think the executive order... Because they built it into the executive order that focuses on cybersecurity, from my perspective, that was fantastic because now we can start to look at how to build cybersecurity proactively into the IT modernization initiative. Again, if you look at how most security environments are built out, they were very reactive. As the new security threat du jour came up, we would go out and buy some new technology to address it. Now we've got this tool overload in these highly complex environments that are operationally inefficient, cost inefficient. So how do we take a step back from that and start to build proactively to a security platform to begin to really solve these problems? I think the IT modernization being part of the executive order gives us the opportunity to have that conversation.
1: You've mentioned this a couple of times, reactive to proactive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you hear that, that's where the automation comes in. That's where you're using data analytics to view a threat that maybe is a potential threat or information sharing. Are you talking in that way or do do you use proactive in a different way, meaning as you are building the latest application or as you are updating and modernizing in this sense, you have not just the built-on versus bolted-on discussion, but the idea of putting... A different type of cyber tool or cyber software inside the the application that can you know use the AI or machine learning whatever sure. you want to call it. Yeah, it's it's all of it, right, uh, Jason? I I would say that it, it, it's all of those. But we
2: had a very and and again this this isn't being critical of the approach because it was the only approach we had at the time. But it was a bolted on approach to cybersecurity. You know, you go back. 10, 15 years ago, you want to connect your trusted network to the untrusted network. You have to have a firewall. Then you realize you have things that get beyond the firewall. So you put in an IPS and you realize you have malware out there. So you put an antivirus and you keep building out these tools without any real plan, any any architecture to build to that aligns to your overall IT goals and your IT uh, uh, technology reference architecture. And again, that's led to this very complex, cumbersome um, operationally inefficient cybersecurity environment that isn't agile enough, isn't automated enough to respond to the threats that we're seeing. Now, to to address uh, building insecurity to applications, to software-defined networking, to AI, absolutely we need to do that. We're operating in cloud environments. We're operating in virtualized environments. We're operating more in mobile environments. So that absolutely has to be a part of uh, our cyber platform, our cyber architecture that we're building. Today.
1: We've talked architecture several times. Let's talk a little bit about the, this concept of a standardized platform as, mm-hmm. as an approach to cybersecurity. Uh, talk a little bit about how that could work or does work. We need
2: a security environment to, to secure cloud that ties back into our endpoint, that interoperates with our boundary protection, that integrates with our application protection, that integrates with our mobile uh, device protection. You start to break up your... Uh, components of your overall cyber architecture into these pieces, and then make sure that these pieces drive to a standard that that force interoperability and automation between them. That's a platform approach that allows you to then, when you build to a standard, plug in the additional capabilities that you need to fill the gaps as, as they come up, rather than, again, continue to pile tool on top of tool that often overlaps 60 70% of capabilities that are overwhelming your cyber analyst with this data that they just don't have the capacity to act on in a real-time fashion.
1: I hear a lot about the key piece to this is the data analytics. Can you know, you're looking for a needle in a haystack already. How do you look for the piece of hay in the haystack right. when it comes to cyber because of the fear of false positives, the idea of how do you mitigate real risks? Uh, Would this platform, how much does a new platform like this depend on this idea of data analytics to really get to the, the real threat versus, you know, the old eighty twenty rule where if you just sure. do some cyber hygiene pieces, you can deal with most of it? You know, I don't want to say it's impossible for people to be able to act
2: on these threats and parse through that data in real time, but certainly automated IT tools that have the right algorithms that can parse through this data quickly and, and correlate multiple events that are occurring on your perimeter, on your endpoint, in the cloud, and identify the threats that need to be focused on. Are our, our IT automated tools with with AI capability, machine learning? Those are the those are how we're going to get there. Those are how we're going to respond to these threats. That, you know, we hear it all the time in cybersecurity. We have our bad actors. They have to be right once. We have to be right every time. Our folks that are sitting in a security operations center trying to parse through, as you say, trying to pick the the bad piece of hay out of the haystack, it's it's impossible for them to do that. We need integration and automation. We need a platform approach. We need better standardization around uh, cybersecurity.
1: This has been a fascinating conversation. and Unfortunately, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, I always like to kind of leave these discussions with what's the future look like or what kind of advice do you have for agencies as they're going down this path? No agency starts from zero. We know that no agency is ever going to be done. We know that. But give me a sense if, if you know, when, when, what are you, what type of advice, what, what, from our conversation, what should people take away and look forward to in the future? Yeah, a couple things. First. Have a cybersecurity reference architecture.
2: I know it sounds obvious, but a lot of agencies and for that that matter, private sector organizations do not have a cybersecurity reference architecture that maps their technology needs to their mission objectives, right? Security is more of an enabling technology than it's ever been. If you're planning to go to cloud and shared services, understand where your responsibility begins and ends in terms of your data protection and have a cybersecurity plan that helps you get there. Uh, That'll again help you with with uh, ensuring that you're not overbuying tools and 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 building in complexity into your cyber environment. Because at the end of the day, complexity is is the number one barrier to um, uh, you know sound security posture. The second is we have to take a step back from the shiny object approach. Um, We have to you know it's fun to go out and buy tools and and look at all these various components, but at the end of the day, we have to we, we have to get away from the shiny object, new tool, and start to start to build to an integrated platform and build to a standard and drive to a standard. So you have a reference architecture, then you settle on your standards, and then you build to that and really force the vendor community to drive interoperability, integration, and automation. Uh, and then the third is we need to, as you said, build on the cyber sprint. We need to make sure that we're quantifying the value of the data, understand where our most critical data lives and building a cybersecurity risk mitigation strategy where we're aligning our scarce cyber resources, whether those are dollars, tools, or people against our most critical data because we can't secure everything.
1: All right, all good advice, all good things that we can look forward to trying to do in the future. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time today. So I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Townsend, the vice president of Federal for Semantic. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Innovation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft, on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at Federal News Radio, keyword innovation.